Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. G'day and welcome to this week's episode of The Educated Hunter. Today's chat is with Alex Olofsson. Pretty sure that's how he pronounced his last name. He did tell me that right at the start of the podcast, so hopefully I've got it right, Alex. Um, Alex is a outfitter, helicopter pilot, game capture specialist, tourism guru from Namibia. I don't know if that's the best description of what he does, but he's an all-round good bugger. Thoroughly enjoyed my chat with him, and it was motivated primarily to get a clear and concise, well-educated version of what conservation looks like for someone who lives in Namibia and deals with animals and conservation on a day-to-day basis. He's heavily involved in rhino conservation, heavily involved in wild game capture, they're currently moving some elephants up into the Congo to repopulate an area there that's where elephants have been extinct for a number of years. Um, he, they run a large photo, photo, photographic, that's what I'm trying to say, operation in Namibia as well as a guided hunting safari operation. So very knowledgeable about all of the different facets of game management. So really good chat. We did it in his booth at SCI this year in Reno. So if you're a bit of sort of background hubbub, um, that's what that is. Hopefully it's not too distracting or annoying, but sometimes you're just going to get these podcasts where you can get them. Uh, On a slightly different note, I see this morning that Namibia has also closed its borders to internationals. So it closed it to non-citizens. this coronavirus thing is going to have a massive impact on everybody, um, hunting outfitters are certainly not alone in terms of the impact that they'll be feeling, but I think that uh, you know if you are affected by coronavirus, be it you're sick yourself or family members are sick, um, our thoughts are with you, as well as those that are feeling the economic pinch, uh, I think by the time this is done, although you're probably listening to this in retrospect and things have 100% changed when you're hearing this to when I am recording it, Um, but yeah, by the end of this I think everybody's going to be affected in some which way or form, so we're going to try and keep bringing you the podcast, we have a few in the can and we also have the ability to send uh, our recording equipment around the country, so that means that we can do that and try and continue to get good chats on tape um, while all of this stuff is going on. Um, here is Alex and the chat I had with him a couple of weeks ago. Hope you enjoy. Alex, <laughs> cheers for doing this. I know it's um, kind of hectic right now. We'll try and smash this out as yeah, quickly as true, we can. No problem. How do you say your last name? Wolofsa. Wolofsa. Wolofsa, yeah. Where's, is that Dutch? Uh, Scandinavian descent. Scandinavian. So, yeah. so it used to be, used to be Olofsson, which is uh, son of Olaf. Um, so Norwegian actually, so yeah, son of King Olaf and then my dad's side, they, 
they uh, the first Olofsons to come into South Africa was something like 1780 or somewhere there. Wow. Uh, and then, yeah, anyway, there was a fight in the family and then the Olofsons blood off from the Olofsons. So you actually have both both still down there. Huh. Um, yeah, but yeah, long, long uh, history. So I'm cornering you because, um, well, for a number of reasons, Stefan, a uh, mutual friend of ours, and, and those who have listened to the podcast before will know Stefan, he... Um, went through the program years ago, then worked in Scotland. He helped open up our Scotland program. And last year he spent a season with, well, a stint with you in Namibia. Yeah. So that's the the common denominator. But I listened to your podcast with the Pace Brothers and I was um, very impressed with how you articulately told the story of Namibia and how you guys do conservation and what that means to you. So that's why I've cornered you, amongst other things. So I appreciate you taking the time. Cool, thanks. Just for the guys listening, what you know, what would if I asked you what you did for a living, what would you say? That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I I consider myself a, a, a game rancher. So yeah. yeah, basically we have a big property in Namibia. It's about thirty five thousand hectares, and we do tourism, we do hunting, we do live game capture, uh, we do game breeding. So but I consider myself a game farmer, but. From day to day, it just changes. It's it's something new every day. You know, if, um, having the tourists and the hunters there, you know, you have a lot of uh, human relations aspect to that. And just yeah. working with the game, it's it's different every day. You know, we were moving elephants to the Congo last year. Oh, shit. Um, get back on like big w- Congo or little Congo, big Congo DRC. Big Congo. Yeah, yeah. So um, I get back on Wednesday um, after the ACI show. We're darting rhino on Thursday. No kidding. So it's just like every day is something else. So, but I I consider myself a game farmer because you're a pilot game. as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, helicopter pilot. As well. So you're yeah. flying. What are you at? A forty four? Yeah, R forty four. Robinson. Nice. So, and you uh, use that for game capture or just yeah, checking yeah. things out? Game, game capture and darting. So, mostly game capture and darting. Wow. So, yeah. You got a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always something new. And, um, yeah, hopefully we, we have a few nice projects in the pipeline. Hopefully we'll be moving some more elephant up to the Congo this year if everything works out. What's the motivation for moving up there? I'm, I'm going to guess that they. There's none there left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So actually, there is in the middle of the Congo. There's a park that still has some. I think they have about maybe around 300 left, where there used to be over about probably about 200,000 elephant are, there. Um, not sort of forest elephant. These are the, the African elephant. African elephant. Yeah, yeah. And and what people a lot of time people think of the Congo and they just think of a big forest, but there's actually big parts which are savanna type and, really? and open and swamplands. And that's more suited to the African elephant yeah. than the forest elephant. And the area that we're moving them to is, is the same. It's, it's more open. So this is where traditionally there would have been African elephant. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a few hundred years ago, um, they were apparently, they reckon about 200,000 elephant in the Congo, so, uh, African elephant. Wow. And um, so the park that we're moving to is close to Kinshasa. So from us, it's about a six-day trip with the elephant. Go from our place down I'm to the there's coast. There's not a highway that goes directly there. No, so they actually go up by boat. Uh, so we go down to the coast, load them on a boat. They go up on a boat for four days, up the Congo River for a bit. Then they got offloaded, and it's about another 15 hour drive by truck. My logistical uh-huh. brain's having a freaking meltdown. <laughs> How the hell do you it's get rough. a darted elephant in a crate? <laughs> Heavy equipment, a few big cranes and uh, some strong cranes. How do you stand crates. them up? Um, you, you basically lie them down and pull them into a crate and then wake them up in the crate. And uh, the crate needs to be big enough for them to be able to stand up by themselves. Right. 
And then once they're standing, then you can kind of uh, coax them into different crates and different areas and stuff. So, What's an elephant's demeanor like when it wakes up in a crate? Uh, you need to give it quite a few uh, tranquilizers to keep them calm. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want them to, uh, to be fully, fully awake once they, once they stand up. So, uh, yeah. And for the whole trip, you just kind of you know, give them a lot of sedatives. Um, they do, yeah, they, they do, um, especially on this trip because it's a six day trip to get them to the park. Um, you know, they, they do tense up really, really bad. Um, if you move elephant, if you have, you know, if, if they're in the truck for 12 to 15 hours, it's, it's a pretty quick move yeah. and then they do it really well. But because of this long trip, you need a lot bigger crates, a lot bigger area for them to move in. You need crates where they can actually lie down because it's six days. But but elephants are pretty smart, so they they figure out what's going on, and and um, you know you keep them fed and you keep them happy, and, and, and these, they do. these elephants are overflow for what you have on your property. Yeah, yeah. So we have um, last year before we started, we had on our property forty eight elephants, and that was max carrying capacity for us. Yeah. And the last few years, we've been having really bad drought. Um, so this was really, really pushing the area to the limit. And uh, we were very lucky to, to get this opportunity to move them up to the Congo to this new park. And um, so, yeah, hopefully everything works out well this year and we, we get the next two batches up there. And, uh, yeah, who knows? We, we might be doing a month, some, some other animals up there as well. That's pretty cool, man. That's so, a good way to start. Yeah. So it's like, like, like you were, you know, like we were saying, like every day is something new. You never know what pops up the next day. <laughs> <laughs> well, darting up a few elephants and shift them up to the Congo is certainly a, uh, a bit of a mush. <laughs> I, uh, I spent time in the small Congo, the Congo Brazzaville. We were, it was years ago when I was filming. And that's all jungle type forest elephant kind yeah. of stuff. But man, it's yeah. wild. It's yeah. so big and so green and just. Like it just blows your mind. Yeah. Like it just the scale of the places. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing the water and the resources and, and everything. Everything just grows wild up there. Pineapples and mangoes and all the different honey. Oh, what? We're getting shit from everybody else standing around. We're trying to do this in a crowded show, <laughs> and uh, we, we didn't choose the most quiet booth to do it in. To be fair, but we'll get we'll get through it. There's a few things I want to run through here because, as I said, I listened to another podcast with you on and I, I felt like you put it quite eloquently. In New Zealand, we usually have a fairly, um, let's say, Disney view of African hunting and the African situation, which is not unusual to most Western developed countries. Yeah. Um, so I've got a couple of prompts here and I, I'd really like if you could speak to them. What do you mean or what does it mean to you for an animal to have value and, and what does that look like? To me, the, the the you know when we when we talk about animals and, and the value of animals, and and you know it's it's like you said you, you know so many people have this Disneyfied view of them and yeah. and basically when you break it down you know you have you have two different types of values on the animals you have the aesthetic value and then you have the value of the utilization of that animal so you know we look at we look up consumptive non consumptive utilization. So basically, non-consumptive utilization is, say, a photographic tourist that would come and just take a picture of the animal, but yep. he doesn't disturb the animal in any, any other way. And then consumptive utilization, you're either using the meat or the skin or the trophy off of the animal. And um, on the, on the non-consumptive side, it's basically a aesthetic value that that animal has. Um, on the consumptive side, it's, it's the physical product. And... What people don't realize is, or people who come from the non-hunting side, they think if you give an animal an aesthetic value that it'll keep them alive. Yeah. But for, for um, a tourist, 
if we on our place just do tourism, I basically just need five animals of every species. Yeah. Because if a tourist has seen a zebra, a giraffe, a lion, and an elephant, he's happy. But I just need five of every animal for him to take a picture. Yeah, good and habituated, go and see them in the same place yeah, every day. Exactly. Job done. Yeah, exactly. But if we're running a hunting operation, we need a certain amount of animals to be sustainable to breed every year so we can take off the bulls. Um, so what people don't realize is that hunting operations actually need way more animals than, than any photographic operation out there. And the prime example is if you take Kenya. You know, Kenya closed hunting way back. And they've lost 85% of all, all their wildlife. And that's because the only value that these animals have is the aesthetic value. Yeah. And for, to the locals, that's, that's no value. So the only value Kenya is getting out of it is in their parks. But all the other communal land outside of the parks, well, if the animal doesn't have a value, why keep it? Yeah. And, you know, in, in Africa, everything goes about protein. So if, if, if the locals can make a living off of the wild game, they'll keep it. If not, like in Kenya then, well, it's out with the wild animals and with the cattle and, uh, and the crops and everything. Yeah, which they can has a value to them, like a monetary value yeah. and an eating value. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so without value, which follows into the next things, without value, what happens? Without value, the animals just disappear. Um, you know, if it, it's uh, the one saying we have back home, it's um, if it pays, it stays. And um, it's, it's, yeah, unfortunately, the world turns around an economic system you know if you look at any country in the world it's growth is based on economics and you need to feed people and you need to utilize land most effectively um, you know just to keep this big machine going and unfortunately for for wildlife the only way for that to stay in 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 big numbers is if it falls into this economic system and so basically if if um, you know it can sustainably be utilized and generate income, um, then it pays for itself. Yeah. Um, so we're very lucky in Namibia that our government realized this very early on. So we actually have fixed in our constitution of Namibia that um, the sustainable utilization of wildlife. Um, so hunting, game capture, game breeding, all that is set in our constitution. And when you compare Namibia to, say, Kenya, it's a stark contrast? Yes, yes, definitely. So if you take Kenya, um, you know, that, they've le- that have lost 85% of their wildlife, and the only wildlife they still have is in parks, and you take Namibia, where 80% of wildlife in Namibia is on privately owned land. Which is generally hunted. Yeah. And you take the parks in Namibia, so the parks, one of our biggest parks, Itosha, has about 12% of, of the wildlife in Namibia, and this is about a, a 2 million hectare park. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, 80% on private land and then a little bit on communal land. Right. But that just gives you, it, it, it pretty much speaks to the same number in, in, as in Kenya. So 80% of, of Namibian wildlife on private land, where the animal has a value, you take Kenya, the animal doesn't have a value, and 80% of that wildlife is just gone. gone. It's a, a pretty clear example, and I, I think one of the biggest misconceptions and one of the things that I get often asked, and I, it's a funny thing. Like I know enough to know that there's a lot more to the story, so I, I I'm often reluctant to speak up on a subject because I, I know enough to know that, you know, I don't know it all. Whereas people who actually know three fifths of nothing, 
are very happy to throw their opinion out and they're very confident with what they're saying and exactly. it frustrates the living shit out of me so exactly. one of the things that I hear over and over again is why can't you just leave the animals alone yeah. wouldn't they be better off can you can you speak to why in Africa leaving the animals alone to you know free roam everywhere like we in the West think yeah. why yeah. that won't work yeah exactly I'm actually going to jump onto another topic there very quickly and if, if people want to go and, and, and read up on this so um, they did a study and it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect yeah and the Dunning-Kruger effect basically goes on how, with how much confidence somebody speaks about something compared to the experience they have in that subject. Gosh. And what they found is that the people with the least experience in a subject have the most confidence about it. And then as they, sur- as they start to gain experience, their confidence drops. Yeah. And then it drops to a low point and then they start getting enough experience to gain confidence again. Yeah. Unfortunately, the amount of people that have the most experience are few and far between, and the amount of people that have no, no experience. experience are millions of people Everybody sitting. Everybody on the internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is—I mean, this is a published study, and it, it just—it it, hit—it hits home to me so much because we, you know, constantly have these debates with people that think they know everything and are so confident about what they say, but actually have no idea, you, you know. About the practical side, yeah, whatsoever, and then, so you know, getting back to to like you were saying, you know, where people say just leave them roam naturally and that. Well, you know, this this was possible five hundred thousand years ago when there weren't roads and cities and fences and borders built up, and and we were with you know sitting with twenty percent of the human population. Now, um, you know, we look at Africa; we're one point five billion people. Um, you go into into um, you know Central Africa. I mean, you look at Ethiopia, 110 million people. You look at uh, Nigeria, 190 million people. So it's not that uh, the the animals still have the range that they that they used to have. The human populations basically pushed animals into small little areas, and with that comes that we need to manage it. Um, you know, like uh, the last seven years, we've been having really, really dry spell in, in Namibia. So um, last year was probably the worst drought in a hundred years that we've had in Namibia. So a thousand years ago, these animals that were hit in these dry areas would just migrate all the way up to you know Central Africa, and and you know all your your pests and your bugs would go further up as well because of the drier area, and then with with the rains and with the Wetter weather, weather, they migrate back down, but they can't do that anymore. So, if we look at, at Namibia, the northern part is the most densely populated, and then from there we go straight into Angola, and this is all communal land. Um, so, basically, up there it's all cattle and sustainable or, or subsistence farming, um, but there's no wildlife left there. So, if we were to take away all the fences in Namibia, and it was a dry year like like last year, the animals would move up. And they would basically run into a barrier of humans. Yeah. And they would just would become be, protein. Yeah. Pretty happy to see them, I'm thinking. Exactly. And you have the same thing with the, with the human-wildlife conflict up there as well with elephants. So, you know, an elephant doesn't really care much for a fence or for moving. Or a highway. Um, yeah, exactly. And um, so you have all these subsistence farmers and, uh, you know, elephants move in and just decimate their crops and uh, then this whole human wildlife conflict comes in so it's 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 gotten to the point where 
we really need to manage the islands of wildlife that we still have. And um, one of those management tools is hunting. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, people don't understand that, I mean, as the population grows, you can only sustain so many animals on a certain area. And there are a few ways to, to control the, the amount of animals. So one is live capture and translocating them like we did with the elephant now. But at a certain point, it gets to the point where everybody has animals and you, there's nowhere to go. And then you need to utilize them. And hunting is a great, great method of this because you're generating so much more income um, just to put back into, you know, generating new areas and preserving the ones that are still there. So my dad started our hunting outfit in 75 and his, his, he always said, it's it's not the one you shoot; it's the ones you leave behind. Yeah, the one animal you take out isn't is is just one, but to take care of the ones you leave behind—that's the important part. That's it's a really powerful statement, and I think a lot of people miss that point. And, and generally, if you don't hunt, it's hard to understand. Again, I mean, that's a great point, and I think it leads into another thing that I often hear: is you know, why do you have to hunt them? Why do you shoot them? Why don't you just take a photo? But when it comes to economics, can you tell me the difference between, say, a per-head photo safari person and a per-head hunter and how that stacks up? Yeah. So we do both. Um, so we have one lodge which we do just photographic safaris. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not very big. We only have about 23 rooms. Uh, we do about just under 10,000 uh, guests a year. And then we have our hunting side. How many thousand? Uh, 10,000. Wow. Sure. Um, yeah. But, but the, the photographic side is a very quick high turnover. So it's uh, probably 60% is one night stays. Yeah. Um, probably another 30% or two night stays. And then you get a, like 10% that it would be four or five night stays. So it's a very high turnover. Mm-hmm. Whereas your hunter is uh, usually a 10-day stay. Um, so we do, we, do, um, we do both. So we have the direct comparison. Um, so, and we keep working these numbers every year. So just to see, you know, how it compares in that. So from last year, we needed 72 tourists to do the same turnover as one hunter. 72. 72 to one. When you, <laughs> so the, the, the pure numbers of that is unbelievable. But when you actually stop and think about it, how much, you know, fuel for airplanes, vehicles, how much food to physically feed that many people exactly. versus exactly. like when you're actually starting to look at not only the pure revenue return yeah but the the stress on like everybody's onto the global warming and size of exactly. footprint yeah like if you have to you're telling like one to 70 so that's 70 times more so your footprint is literally 70 times higher yeah as a as a photo- photographic yeah. safari person, and so so people come with the, with the argument and say, okay, but the the hunter is is taking animals, you know, shooting animals where the tourists aren't. Well, we need to shoot. So your average hunter shoots five to six animals, you know, combination of big and large game. We need to do more than five animals to sh- to feed seventy two people. <laughs> so you actually feed the people from the animals that are on the yeah, land yeah and it's, it's always so funny you know you you uh, you get certain people and and uh, you know they'd ask about hunting and so forth and so on and then as soon as you talk about hunting it's, oh no how can you do that but in the evening when it comes to the buffets oh i want to try the sable i want to try the the kudu i want to try all the so they're <laughs> perfectly happy trying it yeah uh, they just don't want to know that it's being shot um 
but you know when we if we if we talk about the the whole uh, carbon footprint um, side of it so the the one hunter is harvesting those five animals but uh, on the same way those 72 tourists are are also har- you know utilizing those animals because they're eating them but um, you know like you said you have all the waste generation you have all the cars driving around you have all the water that needs to get pumped it's yeah. it's um, it's crazy and then your hunter is somebody who goes out in the bush because he wants to be in the bush. So he'd go to the most remote place to go and collect a species because that's where he want to, wants to be. Yeah. Your tourist is more of a person. He wants to check, has a checklist of places he wants to visit. So that's why it's a high turnaround on the tourist side as well because they'd rather go to a country and visit 10 different spots than spend 10 days in one spot, yeah. whereas the hunter is the other way around. And so, usually, if you look at your tourism uh, um, footprint on a country, it's always pretty close to main roads, easy, accessible places, and that. If you look at the, how hunting is set up, it's usually the remote places in a country. So, if you take a country that has hunting and you, and you stop the hunting, all those remote areas are losing the value to their wildlife. And that then just reverts back to cattle farming or crop farming. Reverts back to Kenya. Yeah, exactly. Good. That's a good explanation. I hope everybody listened intently to that. Um, tell me about rhinos from a Namibian and South African perspective. Yeah, so rhinos um, rhinos have become a pretty, pretty uh, touchy, big subject um, since 2009. Um, so what happened in 2009 is that the, um, well, actually 2009, it started 2010, was really bad, is that the poaching of rhino in South Africa went through the roof. Um, I'm not sure exactly on the year if it was 2009 or 2008, but let's say, let's say 2008, I think there were something like 93 rhino poached in South Africa. Uh, 2009, it went up to 700 and something. Wow. Um, the peak, I believe, was 2011, 2012, where it was 1,200 rhino. So what happened in 2009 is because South Africa had the Soccer World Cup in, uh, in 2010, um, and somebody came up with the, bad, with the idea that, well, so South Africa before 2009 had legal domestic trade in rhino horn, which not many people know. I had no idea. And 2010 came along and somebody said, well, this is a really bad image for us. Let's ban the, the domestic trade. So the international trade was always, uh, since 1977, was, was banned. Um, but then anyway, it just shot through the roof. And since the poaching's gotten bad in South Africa, it's kind of washed over into Namibia. So our poaching's gone through the roof as well. It's become a, 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 a real big media topic and the world's gotten to know about it. What people don't realize is that in the last 40 years, uh, Africa has lost 40,000 rhino. So the reason that the poaching's really gotten bad in, in, in southern Africa, in Namibia, and uh, Botswana, and, and um, so, um, South Africa, is the rest of Africa has lost their rhino. So the poachers are just moving down to where... There's lots of rhino. Where there's lots of rhino. So at the moment, um, Southern Africa has about 18,000 white rhinos still left. Um, if we're going on the trend of the last 40 years, we've lost 40,000 rhino. That gives us, at the most, another 18 years of rhino. That's 18,000 is the number that's out there officially. Personally, I think it's more around 40, uh, about 15,000. And... 
what happened in 1977 was that uh, CITES uh, came about and, and the trade in rhino horn was banned internationally and the trade in ivory as well. So what we a little earlier we were talking about uh, consumptive and non-consumptive utilization and every other animal if you can consume it um, or if you have consumptive utilization of it you basically kill the animal you use the meat you use the skin all that but rhino is a little bit of a different animal because you can actually take the horn off of it dehorn it without hurting the animal because the horn is basically like fingernail it's keratin it keeps growing back so a rhino horn grows back with about a kilo a year. Hmm. And so one of the big, big um, trends that a lot of the, the private rhino owners are working to now is to try and legalize the international trade of rhino horn. Because if you can, if you can sell the horn, you give the, va- uh, the rhino a total different value. So two years ago, there was, um, yeah, two years ago, Um, there's a really, really big private rhino owner in South Africa, John Hume. And he has about 1,700 rhino, which he looks after and he funds out of pocket. Um, His his, uh, anti-poaching and feeding costs him every month about 300,000 New Zealand dollars. And his hope is that if rhino horn is legalized, then he can sell the horn to keep you know his herd growing so his big aim is to produce at least 200 cows every year just to to kind of offset the losses we have with all the poaching happening um and unfortunately thus far it's 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 uh yeah been unsuccessful to to get it legalized so he's had to start selling off some of his rhino just to start covering his costs so two years ago he had an auction um, with live rhino on that. So basically, a farmer would buy a live rhino cow for breeding stock. Um, if there's uh, bulls on there, they would be translocated to different areas and they could be used as hunting stock. Um, the bulls sold on the auction. The cows and the heifers didn't get a single bid. No kidding. Not a single bid. So basically, that animal has a negative value because you have to look after it you have to if it's you have to do the anti-poaching you feed it if it's a drought so that animal is costing you money and it's not worth anything because nobody wants them Mm -hmm. which is sad and you know we were talking about the the um you know if it pays it stays so if this animal doesn't have a value then what's the use of Anyone of, spending the money to keep it. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's come to the point where it's basically become a, a security risk to, to your person. If you have rhinos on your property, you have a big risk of armed people coming in there. And if you want to protect your rhinos, they'll shoot at you. Yeah. Um, so this is where the, the, the whole thing comes out, where we are really pushing now for the legalization of, of the trade of because it, it surely, if it's not on the black market and you start cutting out a few of those black market middlemen, I mean, surely, I mean, if you want to eat a bit of fucking fingernail and wherever you're from and feel like it makes a difference in your life, whatever. We won't yeah. get into the scientific fact that yeah. you just may as well be chewing your own fingernails yeah. to get the same amount of benefit out of it. But if you want to do that, whatever. But surely by legalizing it, you'll cut a whole bunch of that illicit um, chain yeah. out of the equation yeah. and 
and surely there's a bunch of rhino horn lying around oh, somewhere. So if you if you well, according to to the numbers we've kind of like like put together between um, South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, um, there should be about forty tons of rhino horn lying <laughs> in stock. And that, that's another thing is like people always think these like people coming from the non-hunting background they think these animals live forever yeah you know they don't realize that sometime there's a point in in time where animals get old and they die yeah they get hungry and then they lie down and something eats it alive yeah exactly it's really pretty yeah Yeah. um and so all this horn that's lying in storage is basically rhinos that have gone on you know died of natural causes over the years and when park rangers or anybody picks it up they they you know go and they get put in storage and so, 40 um, tons of rhino horn basically equates to about 8,000 rhinos. Right. So, if you take the last 40 years, we've lost 40,000 rhino. It comes down to 1,000 rhino a year that we're losing. So, already just with the horn lying in storage off of dead rhino, we already have eight years' worth of supply for the market, basically. Yeah. You know? Um, one of the big arguments with the legalization of trade is always people are, oh, well, you're just going to be keeping them in pens and, and you know, it's, it's not ethical in that. My answer is, well, we have all this in storage. Let's just first save the species and then we can have the ethical debate. Because at the moment, we're not winning. Yeah. Um, you know, you take Kruger Park. Kruger has one of the best, probably the best anti-poaching team in the world. I mean, they have guys that jump out of helicopters with dogs. Forces, they? they have firefights every day. Um, you know, and they're not winning; they're losing. They lose, still losing rhinos every year. Yeah. So if you can, if you basically have a military operation and you can't win, um, we need a to different solution. Um, Why is there so much resistance? Like, who who are the people that sit there and say, you know what? I don't like the idea of a rhino being used for a consumptive yeah. use. If so, you do this, we're just going to farm them. It's a horrible idea. Yeah. I mean, who are these people? So basically, um, you know, you, you have all your, your, um, your anti-hunters. And so uh, that's basically because of consumptive utilization. And because using the rhino horn falls into consumptive utilization, basically they, from the beginning, anything that is consumptive utilization of a wild animal, they're against so it's 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 a hard one because you know the the numbers are out there studies have been done movies have been made but still it's yeah sometimes you it feels like talking to a rock because it's there's just no give i heard a quote the other day which i thought was really good it was um it's almost impossible to change somebody's mind unless the mind you're trying to change is invested in that process like if you're trying to change somebody's mind they have to be actively open to the idea of having their mind changed exactly and like so we spend a lot of time as hunters trying to change the minds of people that have already decided that no matter what yeah and it and it comes down to a simple question it's like do you want rhinos to be around you know for the next generation yes or no okay are you prepared to have hunting or consumptive use of rhino for that to happen. Yeah, exactly. And the, the answer seems to be no. Yeah. And the, the thing is, if you if you get on a one-on-one basis with these people and you take them out into the field and you show them everything, 95% of the time they are going to change their minds and they're going to see the light. Yeah. But we get back to the Dunning-Kruger effect with the masses we have that are uneducated. And it's, it's just, it's, it's not, 
it's you, it's not practical. You it's can't not a popular subject. So if you're an anti-hunting organization, you're going to make the most money by peddling the most popular exactly. subject, which is, exactly. do you like the idea of a rhino being hunted? Do you yeah. like the idea of a rhino being farmed for its horn? No, yeah. no, no. Um, and, and, you know, we, we go back to... Um, to to Kenya and with the amount of wildlife they've lost. So um, last year we had a CITES COP, so a conference of the parties, and um, Kenya handed in a, a, a application to CITES for the elephants of basically the southern African countries, so South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, to be uplisted to CITES one. So our elephants at the moment are CITES two. So and. <laughs> Uh, well, so the hypocrisy of that drives me nuts. Yeah, and, they've already uh, lost all the elephants. Exactly. So, and and then the best of all is, so you have some supporting countries that are on them or on the application with them. So all these supporting countries are Togo, Benin, um, all these small little uh, West African countries that most of them don't even have elephant. And the best of all, Syria is on the on the application as well. <laughs> A well-known hunting. Uh, de- elephant de- yeah, destination. What what the hell does Syria have to do with African elephant? So just for a side note, CITES in itself. So if you're a signatory to CITES, it gives you a vote on anything, basically, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So if you're a signatory to CITES, then <clears throat> so as far as I know, there's 178 uh, signatories to CITES, and basically every one of those countries gets to vote on applications that come into CITES. And every one of those countries is allowed to put in an application on a certain subject. So you go back and you ask yourself, why do this? Why would Kenya put in an application to Southern Africa's elephants? Where does this come from? Why put Syria on here? Why get all these other countries it's on there? It's money thing. And basically, so Kenya is the mouthpiece of the anti-hunters and the greenies. Because they're doing Kenya, such a good job. Yeah. And, and well, see, that's that's where where the, the perspective comes in. So in my perspective, Kenya is doing a bad job because they lost 80% of their wildlife. Yeah. On an anti-hunter or a greenies view, Kenya is doing a good job because they're not allowing hunting regardless yeah. of how many or you know how much of their population is just gone. Yeah. So because Kenya is their blue-eyed boy, they pump so much money into Kenya there it is. and um, Kenya will just put in any application that they want. It's literally like going, okay, that was a good season. Um, one of these teams came dead last. They got beaten in every game by 100 points. Let's go to them and ask for advice or get them to be the ones that make suggestions for the coaching exactly. for next year. Like it makes zero logical yeah. sense. And, and that's the whole... <clears throat> you know, CITES was started off with real good intentions is to, to you know, save species and, and you know, stop this. It absolutely this. has a function. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's morphed into a political organization more than a conservation organization because you have all these other influences coming in from the outside and and it's it's not serving its purpose anymore so after the last cop the southern african countries were really really disappointed and there are talks of them leaving cites really so and and that just shows you how cites has kind of gone off the path and and Got very lost along the way. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, oh yeah. So, so coming back to the rhino horn. Yeah. Um, so, the black market value of of rhino horn in uh, Vietnam um, for the raw horn, un- unworked, 
is about 60,000 US per kilo. Um, your average rhino horn is about six kilos, so you're looking at about 360,000 US dollars for a horn. For a rhino horn. Yeah. Um, then it gets worked. So, so the, the, the big thing that everybody knows about is, okay, well, rhino horns use medicinal value, it's aphrodisiac, so forth and so on. But actually, there's a big, um, uh, it's, it's, it's used as a status symbol. So the rhino horn gets carved, and the deeper you get to the center of the horn, the darker it gets. And the darker the horn, the more value it has. So they'll carve the horn, they'll make uh, jewelry, they'll make dagger handles, they'll make bowls out of it. And the average resale price of a work piece of rhino horn is 180,000 US dollars a kilo. Cheapest creepers. Um, the horn that they carve off is the horn that gets used for the medicinal purposes. And so a bunch of these samples have been taken and then analyzed. And the horn that gets sold for medicinal purposes is actually only about 30% rhino horn. It's, it's cut, cut it with, with buffalo horn. <laughs> so it's, 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 like a, it's, it's, it's like the drug trade. And what people don't realize is there is trade in rhino horn. Yeah. It's, at the moment, it's illegal trade. And there will always be trade, or for the last 40 years there's been trade. Yeah. So why not just move this trade to the legal side and we can actually have a system in place and we can see where it goes? Um, because I mean, even if you got a sixteenth of what it's worth now, exactly, you could pay for the entire fucking rebuilding of the species. Yeah. So, so John Hume with his rhino, um, his 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 um, farm is a pretty intensive uh, setup. So you know they've they've the numbers have been worked over and over and over again. So his rhino are being fed; they keep being kept in good condition. He has a huge anti poaching unit, and so. For him, it works out to about 5,000 US per rhino to keep them alive per for a year. year. And if you go back to, okay, well, a rhino horn grows with about one kilo every year. So basically, if you work it in a kilo price, um, your cost price on rhino horn in a, in a, a crazy intensive setup is 5,000 US per kilo. Right. So if you put a 100% profit on that and you're selling it for 10,000 a kilo, and the dealer in Vietnam can buy directly from the farmer, that dealer is going to sell for the same price he's selling us now, but he's going to make 50000 a kilo more yeah, buying direct. Sure. So why would he go through the whole supply chain of poacher, smuggler, importer, if he can just go direct to the farmer and it's legal? And what gets me is like, if you were anti this, you could argue it in 10 different ways. Well, if you did this, the legalization of rhino horn would have these negative effects on the rhino. You could argue that to you, Bill, in the face. But one thing they can't argue is whatever we're doing now is not working. If exactly. we consider, continue to do what we're doing now, it's going to continue to not work. And that eventually it ends up with the extinction of the rhino, which nobody wants. Yeah, exactly. That is the one thing we can all agree on. Exactly. So why not try something else? Yeah. And there's always going to be teething issues and there's always going to be fine-tuning. Like you say, like... The idea of guys raising rhinos in a you know ten by ten pen, you know, and feeding them and pumping them for the steroids yeah. so they grow horn faster, is not something that, from my experience and the guys that I've dealt with who own rhinos, are not guys who are going to do that. Period. There might be the odd bad apple, but let's deal with that bad apple exactly. as a bad apple, not the extinction of an entire species. We need to save the species first. Then we can have all these. Uh, and, you know, one, uh, many times when we have this discussion and people come up and they say, well, no, the, 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 the solution to poaching in rhino is, is education of people. and You need to educate the people using it. 
Well, if you go back and you look at the use of, of rhino horn, you know, and, and it's, it's is the Asian market, the Chinese market. So China publicly is very much against, um, you know, illegal trade of horn, the poaching of rhino, all that. But it's like a drug trade, you know, so the biggest market is still there. That's why most of the horn gets gets smuggled through Vietnam. So it actually goes to Vietnam and from there it goes back into China. Yeah. Um, and if you talk about, okay, we, these people need to be educated, well, um, yes, true, but you're looking at Chinese middle class now is about 350 million people who... Same size as the U.S. Yeah, roughly, um, who have, you know, cut off from mainland internet or normal from internet, normal yeah. internet and so if you look at the chinese culture it's it's three thousand years old you know so trying to convince somebody there not to use a certain project uh, product is basically going to to a church and trying to convince people against christianity yeah it's not gonna work it's just absolutely not gonna work it just we, you know, what did you say? We've got another eighteen years of rhino. Yeah, like, we're lucky. you're not going to convince everybody in eighteen years. Well, three hundred fifty million people that God doesn't exist in eighteen years is basically what you're asking. Exactly, right? and it's incredibly frustrating. Okay, thank you. I think that's. Well, I don't want to keep you too long, and I think that that's a a really good start to. I think we're going to have several conversations. Yeah, cool. And I I really have enjoyed this this chat. But to finish on a slightly lighter note, Stefan Hope. <laughs> we both know Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favourite Stefan story? Because this is your opportunity to stitch that <laughs> ponytail, oh. top knot, oh. toting individual up. I don't know. I don't know how many of the stories. How are, green uh, was he when he turned up at your place? Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, he was pretty pretty green. <laughs> it's always it's it's but it's fun getting people out that that are enthusiastic about yeah. it. You know, it's. Uh, um, I mean, it sounds like he had a hell of an adventure. Oh yeah, yeah, and it was just you know something new every day, and and it's. Uh, I think I think he later he didn't even try to think about what was going to happen tomorrow because it was just you too know, much, <laughs> and and it was just you know lucky the how it worked out when he was there because we were just doing a little bit of everything and it came out and we were actually ended up doing some game capture and you know he got to snuggling go, a baby rhino at yeah, one point yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, he um, yeah I got to chase around some ostriches and zebra and stuff in the in one of the capture bomas and yeah. Uh, yeah I don't know that's a that's a good one I think the the yeah this is what? going to take me a time to think of the best what story. was the best humbling moment for him do you reckon did he ever come back into camp totally I think I think the baby rhino kind of did it to him yeah um I mean, you know, we've we've just been talking about the rhino for for a whole bit now, and how how bad the poaching's gotten, all that. And then, you know, when this little baby rhino comes in, that's a week old, and, and mother presumably poached. Um, on, in this case, actually not. In this case, I think the mother actually didn't have any milk because of the drought last year. Right. Um, so we got this baby rhino in from another game ranch um, um, in the southern part of Namibia, and it, it's, it's just really, really dry. And I think the so they found this calf just wandering around aimlessly in the bush, and they didn't know where the mother was, but they couldn't find it, find any carcasses, so she wasn't poached. Um, brought it to us, and uh, basically a week old, and hadn't had any milk yet. 
and uh, it's uh, it's yeah they, they kind of grow into your heart pretty quick and in those in those first days it's a lot of work it's a uh, mulk every two hours straight through the night whole day and uh, yeah Stefan got thrown in on the deep side he was doing night shifts from 12 till through till four in the morning and you know feeding the rhino and uh, I think I think that kind of uh, grew grew on him and, and uh, well, little Ryan ir- grew into his heart. The irony of it, because I mean, I guarantee if Stefan was involved in this conversation, he would be 100% in the camp that we're talking about. Like, we need to save rhinos. And he, this is a guy that's a, you know, a journeyman hunting guide. He's been all around the world. He's this kind of thing. But I mean, legitimately speaking, probably the only person I know personally that's spent time with, you know, literally a baby rhino, feeding it every couple of hours, becoming emotionally attached to that and yet so he in my opinion Stefan has probably got more rhino experience than anyone else in New Zealand has probably got more um, perspective and uh, majesty but able to speak on the rhino subject but there'll be 10,000 others that'll jump on way before he ever will yeah. and speak up about how consumptive use of rhino is the worst thing that could ever happen exactly and this is a guy and he told me yesterday that poor little bugger died and yeah 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 it was unfortunate because it didn't get any milk from the mother um it didn't have you you don't get that colostrum and that starting boost she picked up really well and then it was just yeah the unfortunately picked up uh uh infection so we're suffering you know had trouble with diarrhea and then we the colostrums you yeah your shot of antibodies from mum, really, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Pretty hard to fight that. Yeah, and it's a, uh, it's sad, you know. It's a, uh, of all the baby rhinos we get in, um, we probably only get fifty percent through because yeah. by the time we get them, um, they've, they've, they've gone through so much. Um, you know, we we got some few years ago. We got this little baby black rhino, in, and it was just you know dehydrated and the, they they found it lying next to the mother uh, the Jesus. mother had had well died of natural causes uh, they think might have got rabies or something not they weren't really sure but anyway the mother was dead for probably about a week by the time they got the the small one crying out loud and um <laughs> it couldn't get any milk off the mother so it just started eating everything and yeah. we tried it it's started to take milk and it was just the stomach was just it was just diarrhea it was just water flowing out the back and and then we got it on a drip we basically spent 48 hours because it's not it's not like a human where you say go lie down in bed and stay still yeah so you put a drip on this thing but it keeps moving so you spend two whole days walking around after a rhino trying not to get the, the the bloody tube pulled out and you know it's just and anyway after two days the thing dies you know and you go and we do the autopsy and the whole stomach looks like a spider web this this poor little thing was so hungry it just started eating everything and it's it's a little baby cough it can't digest anything and that it just clogs up the whole digestive system so so by the time we get them you know it's 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 so um it's it's you know you're always happy about the ones that that you that you get to make it through but when there's that small there's so many issues with them really really good friends of ours in south africa have a rhino orphanage there as well yeah. they just got a cough now that was severely dehydrated and actually went blind in both eyes ah, and they uh, they um, they 
got her, you know, on milk and everything, and she's she's doing well. And it, it, it it's so so funny. We were just talking about this little calf yesterday, and because she can't see anything, she she is using her other senses. So they the, the Vian was telling me if you go and sit down next to the calf, it comes and it licks your face, just like just slobbers <laughs> all over you. And he says, like, if you try and stand up, regardless of how quietly you try and move away, that calf is with you all because over. it just hears everything. And um, it's been about a month now, and uh, they got the the eyes, what what's it, eyes, ears, and throat specialist yeah. in to come look at the eyes, and it looks like the pressure's gone down and um, can see light and dark already. So they're hoping for a recovery on this animal. That's pretty cool. And. All these people, you know, our friends in South Africa, one of the biggest hunting operations in South Africa. People and that's don't. something that people don't understand yeah. is you actually give a shit. Exactly. And not only that, you're actually the ones feeding a baby rhino every two hours. If you're sitting somewhere in the United States or New Zealand, it doesn't matter commenting on a Facebook post about, you know, consumptive use of this animal or that. Like, who are you to have an opinion? Exactly. Like, you just—you're not there. You don't live there. You don't know. You don't understand. You've got no practical experience. Yeah. Exactly. Come over. Spend some time. Yeah. Like exactly. the biggest. Like I'm sure you're the same. You get to a point where you get frustrated trying to explain to people yeah. why hunting in Africa is important. And if you're in the wrong wrong mood, I have been known to get short with people. Yeah. My biggest short thing is. Have you ever been to Africa? Yeah, exactly. And 99% of the time, the answer is no. Yeah. And then, okay, if you've never been, I'm sorry, but you were in really no position to comment. Oh, exactly. And then the 1% that do comment, yes, I have. Okay, where have you been? Yeah. Well, I went to Kenya into this national park, yeah. or yeah. I went to Kruger National Park and saw this. So, again, I'm sorry, but you are living in a bubble, exactly. my friend. Exactly. You need to see the 99.9% of everything that's yeah. not in that national park bubble to understand. Yeah. And it's always, you know, you, you have these anti-hunters and they always think of hunters as uh, these bloodthirsty people who just want to kill animals. No. Hunters are people who love animals and want to be out in the bush. That's why they want to experience... I see lots there. of animals. And More animals, the better. Yeah, exactly. And you cannot... That That's my thing always with people who, who haven't hunted before or don't hunt or are against hunting is... In my mind, until you have shot an animal, you will never have as re- much respect for that animal as I have because I have taken that animal's life. Yeah. And it gives you a whole different connection to wildlife on a different level, which you cannot even, I mean, you can't explain it and you can't even, uh, you, you, you cannot experience it or feel it until you've experienced it. The biggest hypocrisy in the world is being anti-hunting and eating a steak. Exactly. I, I cannot stress that enough. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I think that's enough for today, Alex. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I badly need to go to the bathroom. My <laughs> well, thank you. And Stefan's been feeding us. These, have you tried this drink? Uh, no, I've, I'm scared. Yeah, it's not not good. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, man. It was no, lots of fun. My pleasure, brother. Thank you. Hey, guys. It's uh, probably not the best time in the world to be advertising overseas experiences for Ultimate OE. So um, instead, I'm going to give everybody a friendly reminder to download and use the Tar Returns app. The app itself is designed so that we can record the numbers of tar that recreational hunters account for in any given year or given season. 
If we don't use an approved method and one that is essentially accepted by DOC, then those tar that hunters shoot won't be taken into account when they decide how many they're going to cull next year. Say what you will about the Department of Conservation or even the Game Animal Council, it doesn't really matter. One thing I can guarantee is if we don't use this approved method and get an accurate number on how many tar hunters are shooting every year, then they won't use that number or take that into account and more tar will end up getting culled. And at the end of the day, um, we need to work together. It may not be perfect, but we need to work together and get an accurate number of how many hunters are getting every year so we can add that to the pile. Uh, you can download it from the Game Animal Council website. Um, there's instructions on how to do so there, instructions on how to use it, and then I will put a link to it in the description below for this podcast. G'day, thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.